Talk About Books, baby, where we talk with your favorite LGBTQ authors. So this is Anita Kelly, and we have a special guest today. It's Linda Sandoval. Hello, Linda. Hello. Hello, everybody. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for being here. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm chilling on my couch with some cats and um, just, you know, it's my day off, so life is good. Nice, nice. So, Linda, are you the crazy cat lady now? Super crazy cat lady. <laughs> All right. That's we cool. have nine in the house right now, but that, that's a, it's a COVID thing. Oh, really? Because we had, to bring, we had three fosters when the shutdown happened, and we so, of course, we had to bring them home. And, you know, you can't kick them out after they've been here for five months. So Yeah, that'd be rude. Yeah. So they're part of the fam now. Awesome. Yeah. So what are all their names? Let's see. I have to start from the oldest. Uh, we have Carmel. She's about 20. Wow. We have Nika. She's about to turn 19. She's a white um, one, right? No, that's Inka. Okay. Yeah, Misha's a Russian blue. Oh, um, okay. We have, let's see, who's next? Jasper. Jasper John Yushir Shasana. <laughs> she is going to be 17. And then is Inka. Inka Shank Painter. He's 10. Who's next? Rory. Then we have Rory. And she's probably like six-ish. Oh, no, I forgot one. Tui McGillicuddy. See, this is what happens when you have too many cats. Yeah. Tui McGillicuddy's about eight. Rory's about six. Nolan's about five. Um, Spicy's about three and Juno is about, she's probably about three too. Aww. So, so it's like having a lot of kids, you go through all their names, like when you want to <laughs> yeah. yell at them, right? Oh my God. Do you remember my dog Smidgey? Yeah. I, I call them Smidgey sometimes. <laughs> um, Smidgey, Inka, whatever, you, you there, you there, the black cat. <laughs> I had a friend who had a cat and the cat thought its name was damn you because she never, <laughs> she really, never really named the cat, but all she used to say is damn you. <laughs> That's hilarious. You know, people who don't name their cats who bring them to our business, their, their cats are usually named kitty <laughs> because they're like, ah, eh, it's, you know, it's the cat here, kitty, here you go, cat or whatever. Yeah. And then they just, and then of course, 17 years later, there they are, you know? Yeah, I, I have a, a straight friend who is really, I, I'll say she's really sweet and naive, and she mm -hmm. calls her cats <laughs> pussies, and she oh talks God. about her pussies all the time, and I'm like, don't say that! <laughs> it's like, unless you're from a different country where that's okay, yeah. we're going to just say no to that. <laughs> that's hilarious. It is, it's hysterical. Speaking of words that we hate, not that we want, but let's. Uh -huh. Okay, I hate the word panties. Me too. If you are not three years old, don't call them that. I know. I have been known to bribe, jokingly, my authors, like, please call them anything but that because I can't handle it. I know. It really does sound like infantile. Oh, it's just, it, I can't handle it. Yeah. It's just one of those, another one of those things that makes women seem diminished to me. Yeah. I know that a lot of people don't feel that way about that word, but it, that's how it feels to me. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you. Totally. You know? but, but you know what word I think is really weird? What, which one? The word moist. Yeah. Moist isn't, isn't pleasant. It's I don't know. That seems it's bad. I know, you know right? Like the guy in the white panel van, oh. guarantee his hands are moist. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think of. And people are like, what about cake? Do you think about cake? Nobody thinks about cake oh, when I you see. say the word moist. I'm sorry. Not, I do not think about cake. Nope. No. 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 Yeah, it's a terrible word. But you That's know what, Linda? Word. From now on, I will think about the guy in the white panel van. Right? Yep. That guy has moist hands. Possibly some panties in there, too. I know, I know. I didn't want to go there, but. <laughs> you know, I will always go there. I know, right? I know. I'm, I'm the go there -er. That's That's what's so great about you, Linda. <laughs> I can God. count on you. Yeah. I, uh, I do open my mouth more often. I do look back over my life, though, and replay things that I said or did, and I'm like, ugh, like crushingly embarrassed. 
But, um, but you know, it's years later, so whatever. It's just that stuff that keeps you up at night. We all do that. We all do that. That thing I said in 1997, (laughs) I feel bad about that. Really? Yeah. (laughs) I I think lots of people do that. You know, it's, you know. Melatonin was made for moments like that. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Linda, speaking of moments, what have you been doing with your moments? Well, funny you should ask. Yes. Um, so since we moved to New York, we've opened a couple of businesses. Okay. Um, we first opened my yoga studio, Yoga Underground, um, the studio that COVID ate. So we had to close that. Oh, At no. least it Yeah. You know, I don't know any small independent studios that actually did survive the, the, the requirements. If you're a decent person and are going to do them, you know, the, the requirements for cleanliness and and social distancing and mask wearing and all that if you crunch the numbers you just the size of my studio you just couldn't get enough people in frequently enough to actually make enough money to cover expenses so that went away yeah i'm i'm sorry to hear that but you're absolutely Uh, right yep you know so i'm teaching virtually i have yoga underground virtual and i do i'm doing four classes a week right now so that's going pretty well. That's awesome. Um, that's a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Um, the funny thing is, you know, because I teach chair yoga is one of my styles that I teach. And a lot of people are like, oh, the seniors are never going to adapt. They're never going to be able to use Zoom and all this stuff. Those are my biggest classes. Really? People really, really sell older people short. Yeah, they, they do. do. It pisses me off. Anyway, but that I digress. Okay, so I'm doing that. I am, we own um, a cat spa and a hotel well, named cool. Nine Lives Holistic. So that's awesome. That's like the full-time hustle. And um, the then I have a million side hustles. I'm, I have four Etsy shops. Um, <laughs> no way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I make a line of catnip toys out of really quality um stuff and what other side hustles do i have i am working on some online courses which is awesome um i'm doing one for beta readers or people who want to be beta readers to understand what that role is and how to be super valuable to the authors that they read for that is so great cool right yes yeah So I would like to do, I have this big pie in the sky dream that I want to have a business called beta bank where people betas, people who want to read, who want to do that, provide that service for authors will go through this training and be vetted by me. um, And then it'll be like a database that authors can come to and be like, Oh, I need a beta reader with skills in the medical field. Well, here's one. You know, I need a beta reader who reads science fiction with um, skills in astronomy. Well, here's one. Wouldn't that be amazing? That is such a great idea. I do beta reading for Mm -hmm. for a few folks, and um, I I really, I really think that's necessary. Like sometimes I'm unsure how far to push with something. You know? Yeah. Um, So yeah, yeah. Like, where are my boundaries? Yeah. And I mean, the most important role of a beta reader is honesty, you know, honesty and your true gut feeling. It's like if you weren't beta reading, but you were just reading a book for pleasure and you were telling someone about it, you know, and you were telling them the truth. It was like, yeah, you know, I just didn't really buy off on that. And and the thing is, the authors don't need you to tell them why they just need you to tell them that it's happening. Like, um, I wasn't really bought into this part here. You don't have to know why, but if the author knows that that the reader is not getting something from a section of the book, then they can look at it usually and and um, you know write themselves out of that or figure out what's going on. Yeah, that's a great idea because you know I don't want to say something and put someone on like the defensive and right. and I'm afraid sometimes you know that could happen. Um, yeah, I'm just, uh, but I do want to be honest, you know, this is how I felt about this part or, you know, yeah, 
Yeah. And that's so important. And for like all the authors out there, if you're using betas, you need to check your freaking ego at the door. <laughs> you are putting it out there for them to read as a first read before it goes out widely in the world. Why wouldn't you want somebody to be honest? Yeah. You know, we're, we're not all perfect. Uh, none of us are perfect, I should say. Yeah. And you know, we do our best, but we're also blind to the work at that point. You have to have somebody else look at it. Would you rather them not be honest? And then it goes out widely and 50,000 readers in a perfect world, 50,000 readers that do you know what I mean? Oh, I totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. Like you, there, there comes a point in time when you have to let go a little yeah. of the ego of your work and just be open. Know that the fact, know the fact that people who are reading it aren't hammering you, you know, your ancestors, your abilities as a writer or whatever, they're telling you what you ask them. They're doing what you ask them to do. It's so important. It's so important to let go of that. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I, I yeah. think this is a great idea. Um, if I can help you in any way, I would be glad to do that, Linda. Awesome. All right. You're hired. All right. All right. And here's the thing too. Like, Sometimes as an author, you want someone to read your book, not as a reader. You know, there are different different beta roles. Mm -hmm. So sometimes you just want someone to read it and tell you, was it compelling? Mm -hmm. you know, did you want to keep reading? Was there anywhere where you stopped? Mm -hmm. Blah, blah, blah. Sometimes you want somebody to read it and say, is this, would this actually happen in a venture capitalist meeting? Just like, would this happen? Yeah. If this wouldn't happen, can you fix it to where, what, how it would happen? Yeah. And that's what you need. But the important thing to know, though, when you're using experts like that, I know, I know I'm all over the place, but it's just who I am as a person. So let's run with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> when, you, when you are using an expert, um, you have to have written the scene. Like, you can't go to an expert. It's, it's disrespectful of their time, like, to go say to, let's just say a cop since I used to do that, mm -hmm. to go to a cop and say, what would a cop do if they got a burglary call? Well, they'd go on the call, yeah. dude. That's what they would do. You know what I mean? It's not, that's, that's not the time to use an expert. What you do as an author is you write your scene for what you need for the, for the role that scene is playing in the plot. And then you send it to an expert and be like, could that happen? Yeah. And they, and they would be like, well, no, it wouldn't happen exactly like that. And they'll tell you exactly what to put in. That's then you're, you're, it's the best use of your time. It's the best use of that expert. Yeah. That, that makes total sense to me. That's good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. In Rachel Spangler's last uh, work that we were editing together, she had um, yoga scenes, uh -huh. right? So that was really easy for me to add in just details that gave it some verisimilitude just you know just those details that make it seem super authentic yeah. um she didn't ask me about yoga stuff beforehand because i would have been like i don't know write the scene and send it to me because it's Rachel, right <laughs> but <laughs> yeah uh, but that's what you should do always yeah you know you should always have what you need done and then send it off or, or ask an expert about it. Absolutely. That makes sense. And then, you know, you're getting some feedback on what you wrote then too. You know, it's not like exactly they're telling you what to write. Uh, yep. So, so um, in addition to all of these side gigs, you have another new side gig that I've seen on Facebook. The empowered writer. Yes. Yes. Tell us about that. So this is my other, this is my other, uh, big notion with, with writing. So as an author, okay, when I was first writing and publishing was back in the day when you actually printed out your manuscript, right? Mm -hmm. So in your age and, um, and you sent it off and you had no real control over the process. Right. And, things have changed so dramatically since then. And I think with the advent of self-publishing and everything else, we as authors need to be more in control of the end product. Okay. And the best way to be in control of the end product is to not give them very much to edit, right? Mm -hmm. If you send in a rough work, then you're going to get opinions out the wazoo of everything that you should do to change. If you send in something, and I'm not, I'm not talking about 
polished, perfect sentences necessarily. I'm talking about the most solid story, the richest characters, no plot holes, blah, 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 blah. You know, all those really important components of a book. If you send, send that in, then they're going to have, you know, then the, what they're going to want to edit is sentence structure and whatever. Great. Let's edit that yeah. instead of tearing the story to shreds, right? Yeah. The tearing the story to shreds, we want to be in control of that. So I started the Facebook group to share initially just to share where we all are with writing, how we are doing in our editorial relationships, um, agent relationships, if you have those. And then let's talk about concrete ways to write better. You know, let's figure out how we can edit our own work without having to have an outside opinion. Like tr it's, it's like a gut training. You train your gut. You know, with me, when I'm writing, I know when it's not there yet. And I know when it's there, mm -hmm. right? So it's it's a matter of training yourself to know that. Did I always know that? No. When I was a, a newer writer, I totally depended on my critique partners and and workshops that I went to and everything else to help me learn how to write. Mm -hmm. But get to a point in your writing where the only feedback you get from peers is that you're a good writer. And at some point, you know, zero arrogance, but at some point, you know, you can write, right. you know, you, you know, you're a good writer, mm -hmm. but why is the story working? Mm -hmm. Nobody can tell you that, right? Yeah, <laughs> seems yeah. like, it seems like nobody can tell you it when you're at that point. So I, this is sort of my superpower. I can tell, I can read somebody's work and I can tell you what is wrong with the story. Right. It's just it's not something it's just something that's within me. It's like I was born with it. Do you know, it's one of those things. I, and you're really good at it. Like I I remember I sent you two short stories that you edited for me. Yeah. And, and you were right on the money. Like amazing. Yeah. You know, and I mean, I'm not saying that I'm always right because that's never true. Like except in your relationship, I'm totally always right there. But, um, <laughs> but other than that, um, <laughs> It's not, it's almost not a matter of that I feel like I'm right. I just know that I can do this. I know that I can take somebody's manuscript and help them make it better mm -hmm. without changing their voice, without writing it myself, without doing all that rewriting stuff that people complain about with an editorial relationship. Mm -hmm. I know that I can help them see what they're not seeing. Yeah. And then they can go off and make it better. Yeah. Yeah. You do have that. It's like an innate ability that you have. Yeah. You know, we all have something, mm -hmm. right? I can't bake to save my life, but I can do this. So that's your superpower, eh? Yeah, I think it is. Awesome. awesome. I think it is. And, yeah. And so tell us more about the empowered writer. Like what, what is your, the overall plan with that? So I'm working on an online course for authors and specifically for authors who are at that crux, that point where their writing is good. They know their writing is good, but the book's not working and they're not selling and they don't know why. Okay. And it's going to be an editing course, but it's going to be more, it's not like a, it's not so much editing as it is book doctoring. Let's bust this sucker apart and make it be what you see in your head, you know, because there's always that thing mm -hmm. where the, the book you just finished is flawed and the book you're working on is impossible. And that next book down the road is perfect because it's still in your head. Yeah. Right. It's the, it's the head to paper or head to keyboard transfer. That's the difficult part, yes. you know? So you think that you're getting it all in there, but you're not necessarily. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes I think it would be easier to, um, yeah, use like a, um, a verbal um, program. Um, yes. Instead of using the keyboard, like. Yes, yes, yes. Almost like dictate your story. Right. And you know what's awesome about that is when they do it wrong and it's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. That's the fun part. <laughs> it's an added layer of excellence in the writing process. There you go. I love yeah, it. Yeah, that's, that's a great idea. Yeah. So the empowered writer, I wanted to 
to build a community where one, we could all come to each other um, for, and help and learn from each other. Two, um, to support the upcoming online course that I want to do. And um, it got to the point with my editing where and all my other businesses, that's the problem. Like if I could just do one thing, Sandoval, then life wouldn't be so crazy, but I can't. So you would be bored. I would be bored. You're right. I would be bored. Um, it got to the point where I had my little group of authors um, and I could do no more than that. Right. And even that got to be uh, too much for me. I was because, you know, I was editing George Beers, Melissa Braden, Rachel Spangler, Joy Argento. Was there anybody else? At that point, let me think. No, that was all. That's enough. And, yeah. And even though, you know, those are those are some prolific authors. Yeah. So um, I had like 12 or 13 books a year. And that's a lot to edit if you're really, if you're, you know, if you're really trying to do your best job. Heck yeah. um, then I had, I had um, you know, kind of side hustle people that I edited that weren't for the publishing houses. Yeah. So I had to back off of that a little bit right now. I'm just editing Rachel and then I'm doing um, private edits for people who just come to me and hire me. So I'm not working specifically for a publisher right now. Um, I needed to, I needed to back off last year when I was really going crazy uh, with time Mm -hmm. and it was a good change for me. Although I'm still in absolute mourning about not editing those people because I just love them and I love their work and editing for the people that I, those people that I edited for was a total joy. Um, And in fact, for most of the other people that I edited over the years, you know, Julianne Rich, Jennifer Lavoie, um, Libby Wheeler, Mm -hmm. um, you know, just, it was a joy. I'm not saying that I've never had an editing experience where I was like, I want to kill this person (laughs) because I have, but, um, but you know, none of these people that I'm mentioning, it was none of them. So So I I imagine like, I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about Georgia beers, right? She comes to you for like years of editing and Mm -hmm. then, and then she switches. Um, I wonder for her what that transition was like to, to change editors. Is that? Yeah. Well, you know, she's done, she's pub or, edited with a lot of different editors over the years, just because of the trajectory of her career. So it's always hard. um, Speaking as an author, been there, right? It's always hard because you get in a rhythm and you have a language with people, Mm -hmm. you know, where, where it becomes almost, um, I don't know. It's almost, it's like a relationship. I was going to say you're in a relationship and it's, not any different from any other relationship where you can almost complete the sentences and you know what they're thinking, you know what they're going to say next. Um, You know how they're going to respond to something. Yeah, exactly. So it's, uh, it's a tough transition. I mean, I know, I'm not sure. I think they, I'm not sure. I can't, don't quote me on this, but I think they both went with Ruth or Ruth got assigned to Ruth and she's amazing. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. You know, um, that's one thing. And I, would, I think all of the editors at Bold Strokes are amazing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, and kind, you know, and, um, want the best for the authors for sure. That's important to be kind. It is to me, you know, when I started, when I started editing, because I'd been on the author side of it for 24 years and, or 24 books, 24 years, That'd be amazing, but no, that's not true. Um, I, I vowed to myself that it was, I was going to have good relationships with the authors because there's no reason not to. Yeah, you're right. There's literally no reason not to. If you are, and I don't, I don't know any particular editors in my circle who are like this, but if you are an editor who needs to make an author feel bad, to make yourself feel more important, then you should be in a different field. Uh, I don't even know what field you would go into. How about proctology? Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't know either. I just think. I honestly, I think it's bullshit. Yeah. No, even yeah. if you have to deliver 
hard um hard news to an author you can do it in a kind and respectful way absolutely there's no reason to ever break a person down no no absolutely always be kind and respectful you know and and people will really absorb that better than if you you know come out them pointing a finger yeah and i mean this doesn't mean that i haven't told someone to completely uh tear their book apart in fact i told Georgia that one time and we called it a global restructuring. <laughs> well, that's what I called it. And so then after that we joked about that phrase forever. But the thing is, Georgia handled that like a total pro. Wow. I'm not saying she probably didn't drink a lot of wine and go shopping, but because I'm sure she did. But after that, mm-hmm. she just like handled it like a professional. She is a professional. Yeah. yeah. You know, what do I need to do? How do I need to do it? And then she got to work and she did an amazing revision. Yeah. And you same wouldn't thing. expect anything less from her. Exactly. And same thing happened with Rachel. She didn't have a global restructuring, but the first book we did together mm-hmm. um, was not coming across in the first, I think, three or four chapters. And so I just was like, your book actually starts here. Oh. So all this work you did, right? Mm-hmm. And um, same thing. She handled it really, really well and did a great job on the revision. Yeah. Yeah. I would expect she would too. Yep. Definitely. You know, if, you, if you come at someone, of course, they're going to be defensive. Sure. Yep. But, you know, there's literally no reason to come at someone when you're a book editor. No. For um, God's sake. Yeah. You know? So, so, Linda, you said you had 24 books that you've written. Yes, but not for the not for the lesbic market. Okay. Um, I started out writing uh, romance for, let's see, what was my first book? Kensington was the first publisher that I published with. And then I sold to HarperCollins. Um, and that was a big women's fiction book sale I had right after that because the book industry is a fickle bitch. And when nobody wants you, nobody wants you. And when somebody wants you, everybody wants you. It's so stupid. But anyway, so right after I had the big book sale, I sold to Simon & Schuster, um, Avon, and Harlequin, and somebody else. Wow. Houghton Mifflin. So I was doing a um, a lot of different, I was doing young adult, I was doing women's fiction and romance okay. at that point. Yeah. And and you write under another pen name then, right? Yeah. And this was, that, that was all contractual because, so when you sign a book contract, you have an option clause and the option clause, if you have a good agent, which I do, then he or she can narrow that option clause so that, um, so that this one publishing debt house doesn't really own your entire career, which is so important. I mean, if you if you don't narrow your option clause, then you can be tied up and not able to sell your work for to anyone. Right? Wow. It's terrible. So instead of, you know, the option clauses in the boilerplate contracts, they always say something like, option for the author's next work. Nope. Hashtag nope. <laughs> so my agent would um, narrow things like option for the author's next work of romance or heterosexual romance fiction of 65,000 words to 85,000 words. Wow. Right. So then I could write young adult for someone else. I could write short romance for someone else. I could write women's fiction for someone else. And you have to do that with every single contract. So by the time I um, took some of my stuff to bold strokes, I needed to, I, I was optioned in a way that I wouldn't be able to sell them anything because I don't think we specified heterosexual was the problem. So I had to just do a pen name so that I could write for them. So then the, you know, the option for them, I don't remember specifically, but it was probably something like option of lesbian fiction written by Leah Santos. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it's very specific. Okay. Okay. It's weird. It's weird out there. You have to cover yourself. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I never heard anyone talk about that before. That's interesting. Yeah. It's cool stuff. Yeah, it is. It is. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons why 
Um, and I, and I know that agents aren't always as effective in the lesbic market, but if you're going to, if you're going to branch out at all, or if you're diversifying what you're writing, you know, you have to have somebody who knows those contracts, especially this stuff that can bite you in the ass. Yeah. Can I say ass on this? Sure you can. You can say anything you okay. want. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's super important. So how has like, being a published author has that changed your life and and if so how um that's a good question um <laughs> i don't know that it's changed my life you know i knew that i wanted to write from when i was in preschool and i wrote wrote quotes my first little book with my um kindergarten teacher Aww. it was very cute it's still around here somewhere, although maybe not. But anyway, uh, and that was really fun. And I, I always, it was always my goal, you know, to be a writer. And then I got away from it. You know, you go to college, they make you declare a major, and that's a whole bunch of, a whole sack of bullshit. Yep. And I changed my major 800 times. And yeah. then I was, I was uh, at this point in my illustrious 11-year bachelor's degree career, <laughs> I was uh, a human services major okay. and I wanted to maybe work with runaways um, or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I took this, there was, I can't even remember what class it was, some psych psychology class. And I, the, the thing was we were supposed to go in, take the final, go up to the front, pick up our paper, our final paper and, and hit pack sand, right? Mm -hmm. You were done with the semester. Yeah. So I did that. I did my test. I went up, I got my paper. I'd written this paper and I was leaving. I was walking down the hall, looking at my paper. I got a really good grade on it. And I hear this click, click, click running high heels behind me. Right. So I'm like, what? And I turned around and it was the professor and she goes, Linda, Linda, wait. And I said, what? And she goes, are you, are you really dedicated to the field of human services? And I was like, yes because i thought it was a trap right yeah. so you know and i was like yes and she's like because if you're not you should write what you should be doing in your life is writing and that was it for me that i finished my degree but then i was like i'm gonna do that i'm just gonna i'm gonna do that thing That's yeah awesome. so how did so, you become a cop Oh, you know, I came back from, I lived in Germany. I came back. I went on a ride along with my best friend, Sue, who'd become a cop while I was gone. Uh -huh. And I was like, this seems fun. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I applied and everyone was like, are you kidding me? You're four foot 11. Get out. Right. Uh -huh. So then I was like, you know what? I'm going to prove that, that I can do this. So I aced all the physical tests and I aced all the written tests and I'm really good at interviews. And so I finally got a job, but there was a lot of stigma around that, around my size. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. But then they were like, you have to be able to do all this stuff physically. And I was like, okay. So then I did it and they, you know, it comes to a point where they can't give you an excuse anymore. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And my height was such an advantage as a cop. Oh my God. When we were in a situation like a big, like a situation where shit was going to go down. Yeah. Nobody looks at the tiny female cop. People probably so, underestimated you all the time. Totally. You know, in those situations, there's usually two or three cops. You're usually sort of triangulating right before stuff goes down. Yeah. Nobody looked at me. So I always could be the one who could get the drop on them. You had the element of surprise. Yes. And then the best part was they blamed the other guys. So I walked away smelling like a freaking rose. Oh, that's awesome. It was great. It was an advantage. Yeah. And it was an advantage also with um, gang members at the time. The area that I worked in, we had a lot of Latino gangs. And they were, are, they were more respectful of a female. Yeah. Yeah. Than they were of the male cops. I can believe that. Yeah, I mean, it was. Yeah. No. No. I I worked in a, a men's uh, correctional institute for a while, and I definitely uh, got more respect than any of the the guys who worked there. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, and women handle stuff differently. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was far more likely to talk my way out 
or talk somebody down yeah. than to just be like, never mind and Shoot them and down. fight with them, yeah. fight with them, whatever. Use force. Yeah. And that does a lot of things. For one, it saves you on paperwork. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for two, it keeps you out of trouble. It's the more you can de-escalate a situation, the yes. better it is. Yes. So yeah. I don't know. It was an advantage. Yeah. The only disadvantage that I think that there was is that I had to crawl into the creepiest fucking places. <laughs> you know oh, what I mean? Yeah. You can, I was the smallest to like crawl spaces, oh. monsters, stuff like that. They're like throw Sandoval in. Yeah. So that that sucked. But oh, that did suck. Ah. So, um, Linda, do you yeah. do you still write at all? Like with everything else going on in your life. I do. I don't write books right now, but I write every single day for the cat shop. I have, um, we have a Facebook page and I do these little profile stories. There are a lot of, you know, creative license, um, about the cats <laughs> with photos. Like we take photos and then I do these stories and I, you know, I'm a goofball with it. I, I make up fake lives for them and I mean, it's really fun. Oh, that's it's awesome. Really fun. I have like a pretty big following. I mean, we have like a 20,000 um, post, 20,000 people post reach weekly, wow. which is kind of crazy. That is crazy. So that's awesome. Everybody, yeah. Everybody has been uh, telling me, you know, to put the stories, compile them in a book, which I'm working on. But, um, you know, there literally really is only so much time in the day. So, Even um, for you. Yeah. So I'm going to do that. Um, I plan on that. It's just a matter of, of doing it. Yeah, that's cool. I need, I need to hire, a, like, a, somebody to help me. Did you, ever, <laughs> did you ever read the book called The Cat Who Drank Too Much? I have seen the book, yeah. but I, I have it. not read it. I love that is book. It, is it good? Yeah. I oh, mean, it's like, it. it'll take you two seconds to read, you know, it's, it's more of a picture book with some words underneath, but it's great. It's awesome. Just my speed, Anita, just my speed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. So, so Linda, what is the one thing that you would tell your younger self? Maybe it's something you've learned along the way or something you discovered you didn't know or yeah. Yeah. Um, I would tell myself two things. One, I would tell myself not to go the traditional college route that I went. Um, I'm a super artistic person and I would have gone to art school or a different route than the traditional university bachelor's degree, blah, blah, blah. I would tell myself to do that. I didn't, I wasn't raised in a family where that was really an option. Mm -hmm. um, and I, it never even crossed my mind at that age. I, I just did what I was supposed to do. Um, okay. So even like, even a, a liberal arts education sounds like it would be good for you. Yeah. Something, something completely different from yeah. the traditional college route. Yeah. I would have done that. I would have told myself to move to a big city like New York or Chicago or San Francisco um, and just like live and learn. So did you grow uh, up in a small town? Nah, I grew up in Denver, but still, okay. it, you know, I don't know. Bigger than that. Okay. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would have told myself at every stage of my life that I wasn't fat and to stop worrying about it. You know how you look back at pictures when you thought you were fat and you're like, man, I wish I was that fat right oh, now. Yes. <laughs> I have that same experience. Oh. You know, I mean, we're so freaking hard on ourselves as women. I can't stand I know. it. I, know. I just, you know, wow. and so I, I would, there were too many years where that was a, like, not even just necessarily the, you know, being fat or not being fat, but just the looks thing, yeah. but worrying about that over worrying about that um yeah. Yeah. and i would go back to my younger self and say you're fine like just let it go everything's fine no one cares yeah no one cares no. and the people who do care aren't worth it so like let all that worry and fret and everything just let that go those are the things i tell myself as a human do you think that those things have changed for i'll say this generation of 
like um, young adults or transitional age youth? Do you think that that's changed for them compared to when we were coming up in the world? No, I don't. I mean, I think that the pressures are different, but they're still there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. They're still, I mean, it's different depending on kind of what group you hang with and whatever, but the pressures those pressures of conformity are still there. It's almost you, like they start earlier now. And then yeah. by the time you're like 16, you're like, oh, fuck it. I don't care what anybody says, you know? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And there's even pressure to conform amongst groups of nonconformists. Yeah. No, you're right. You know, it's, it's like one of those... I just want to be one of those eccentric people that is on TLC that they do some kind of a show where they're like, yeah, this person is out there. That would be great. If you set a precedent for that, then you can get away with anything. Oh, you're right. You're right. Because people are going to expect that from you. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that there's I think that there's a lot of pressures. And I think that historically in my life, I've been extremely hard on myself about a lot of things. I take after my dad that way. He was very hard on himself too. Um, so I think I would probably tell myself a little less beating up on myself and a little more kind of nurturing of self. Okay. Do you think that that uh, pressure that you put on yourself like really propelled you to you know, do all the things that you you've done and, and, you know, be all that you can be. <laughs> <laughs> um, kind of, I feel like, um, I feel like I just don't want to live a life where I do one thing. Mm -hmm. I have so many interests and, you know, and I know that people are like, well, do one thing for your job and have a hobby. And yeah. I, I don't know. Like I, my hobby is starting businesses. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. You know, my and, hobby is side hustles. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and, you know, you're good at it. And I really, I really was serious when I th said you would be bored and I really think you would be, you know, I, I would. Yeah. It's true. And you, it's true. you have so much like gusto for life that, you know, it would be a shame for you to just, sit and do nothing and I think you would kind of just like uh wither away you know yeah yeah and you know there were period there have been periods in my life like when we first moved to New York um I was editing I wasn't writing at that point and I had a part-time job in a vet hospital mm -hmm. and so there were times in my life where I wasn't doing a lot mm -hmm. um but that's the way life is you know like right now I'm doing a lot because I love all the side hustles I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have this, I have this crazy ass mug shop on Etsy called wordsmith makery. Really? And I, I get to make up like obnoxious mug designs and notebooks and um, stuff, you know, I mean, it's really fun. I really enjoy that. So it doesn't even feel like work to me. It feels like a hobby. Like if I'm, sitting on the couch after work with a glass of wine. I could just be staring at the TV, which of course I do that sometimes, or I could be staring at the TV and sitting on my laptop, making up funny mug designs, which I don't know. I think that that's very relaxing to me. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Um, yeah, it's yeah. cool. And I have some other really weird side hustles. Like uh, we sell the clean cat fiber from D shedding, which is the undercoat, mm -hmm. just like lamb fiber or alpaca or whatever we sell it to on an Etsy shop called feline fiber co to knitters and, and spinners and those kinds of things. Wow. So that's cool. I sell bags of hair. That's epic. <laughs> that's so cool though. That's like recycling. Yeah. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. That's a great then, idea. Yeah. We sell uh, dirty hair from like when you shave a cat down which you do before the bath, we sell that to a company. Uh, it's an allergens bank for the scientific market and it's in Massachusetts. And so we sell them dirty cat hair and they sell it. They then sell it to people who are doing medical research on allergies and things like that. That's just Very smart. Cool. Yeah. That's just smart yeah. business, you know? Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, 
how else are they going to do the research? I know. In a humane way, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that's so that's great. a side hustle. Um, and then teaching yoga online and working on some online courses. So a lot of stuff. Very cool. So what would you, what advice would you give to our, we had some listeners who are budding authors. So, so what would you, what advice would you give to them? Um, Ignore the marketing and selling aspect until you have the writing aspect down solid. Don't think about submitting your book or polishing up the first three chapters to submit a partial without writing the rest of the book. Just write the freaking book, Mm -hmm. write the book. And then revise the book and tinker with the book, right? Mm -hmm. Before you focus on the rest of it, because the rest of it is a distraction until you're ready. You know, when you're ready, then you're at that next level, but you're not there until you're there. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you have to focus on the writing. The other thing I would say is, um, um, sorry, my cat was trying to chew on my phone cord and I got distracted. (laughs) Hold on a second. Which cat? (laughs) Rory. Um, let me, let me think what I was going to say here. Hold on just a second. New writers advice, Mm -hmm. advice. Okay. Stop thinking about what the market wants from you and write from your heart. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like such a cliche, but I don't mean write the book of your heart or all that stuff. I mean, write what you are passionate about. If something enrages you write about that if something is so you're obsessed about it write about that right and i'm talking not about a thing i'm not talking like i'm obsessed with cardinals okay write about them no (laughs) write about write about the obsession yeah write about what that feels like write an obsession story and put what you're feeling into that you know what i mean like That is what's important, not, you know, cute meat, girl meets girl, blah, blah, blah. All of that's going to come in the structure of the book. Yeah. But if you're just writing something because you think the market wants it, it's going to be flat. Okay. That's, that's really good advice. See, you are freaking awesome at what you do. Why, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I have my perks. <laughs> you sure do, Linda Sandoval. <laughs> so, yeah, that's what I would say. And just also to train your gut. Okay. Don't depend so much on everybody else's opinion of your work. Keep it a little closer to the vest, um, what you're doing and why you're doing it. And then learn to trust your gut. Listen to what other people say. Be open to opinions and feedback. Mm-hmm. But ultimately... You have to trust your gut because nobody cares about your book like you do. Mm-hmm. Not even not your editor who loves it too, not your publisher who wants it to sell well and make money, not your mom, not anybody else, not your partner. You are the one who has to nurture this book into the world. So you got to train your gut. Okay, that's great advice, Linda. Thank you. I appreciate You're that. Um, well, I'm sure we'll get some feedback from our listeners. I'll let you know what they have to say. Yeah. And everybody should totally come and find the empowered writer on Facebook and join the group. Don't you agree? Absolutely. It is a fun Facebook page for sure. Yeah. And it'll only get better as we have more people and more stuff going on, Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. So No, definitely. Um, It's a pretty new venture. So again, that's called the empowered writer and it's a Facebook page. Um, and can anyone join or do you have to be invited yep. to join? Anyone can join? Yep. Awesome. yep. Anyone can join. Awesome. Yep. And um, there's just a few rules. Like you have to be nice and kind in the group because there's enough bullshit everywhere else on Facebook. If you want to be a troll, mm-hmm. you can go join Trolls RS on Facebook. Okay. Um, huh. And no political talk. Yeah. There's enough of that shit. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? Yep. This is a place where we talk about our craft and what we're passionate about. Um as far as the craft and, and help each other. That's, that's what that place is for. So those are the rules. Yep. It's, it's, you've done a great job so far. Um, I'm liking it. Good. I'm so glad. So, so Linda, any parting words for our listeners? Parting words, um, wear a mask, wear it appropriately. If you don't know how to wear it appropriately, 
look it up. YouTube it. <laughs> There's a YouTube video on that. Yes. And remember that the mask is not about protecting you. The mask is about keeping your spit and stuff from the outside world. Yes. That's what the mask is for. I still think people don't understand that. I know. It's about protecting others. Yeah. It's a face condom, people. That's Keep right. your face spew out of my space. That's right. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess the other parting words for it, seriously, that was just being stupid. But um, if you want to be a writer, then there's just a very, this is a secret key that nobody knows. If you want to be a writer, you have to sit down and write. It's not so secret. See? That's so <laughs> prolific. You know, like, yes. and you can't, you can't wait for the world to give you time. You can't be like, oh yeah, when I have time, I'm going to write a book because guess what? It'll never happen. You literally have all the time in the world because we all have all the time in the world. And you may be, uh, your hours may be obligated differently than somebody else's. Mm -hmm. um, it's the way it is for all of us, but no one's going to hand you a sabbatical from your life to write a book. So write it one sentence at a time, write it one word at a time, you know, just a tiny bit. If you want to write, you just have to do it. You just got to write. Yep. Do it. And you're not going to know how to write a book until after you've written a book. Yep. Yep. You have to write one so that you can do that 2020 hindsight thing and go, Oh, now I get it. Yep. Absolutely. It's okay. If that first book is a write off. All of us think that that's not going to be us. Right. I thought, my first book. I heard that all too, you know, oh, don't worry about your first book being perfect. It probably won't sell. And in your mind, you're like, but mine will. Well, mine, I thought that mine didn't, it was horrible. It was a learning process. We yep. all need that. Definitely. So, definitely. It's so And true. if you sell it, then it's a bonus, right? And yep. that's great. But if you don't, it's not wasted time. You have to go through that hurdle or over the hurdle. Yep. See, that shows you how athletic I am because I didn't go over the hurdles. I went through the hurdles. <laughs> <laughs> you bulldozed those hurdles. <laughs> Hashtag not a jock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Well, Linda, thank you so much for being with us today. Um, it really has been awesome to talk to you. And um, that's all the time we have. And I'm going to Pardon me? That's crazy, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm Anita Kelly, and thanks for joining. Let's talk about books, baby. So until next time, may your journey be lighthearted, peace be plenty, and be safe, folks.